It's go time. Welcome everyone to Third Down Gamble. I'm Don Charbon along with Heath Graham. We have now learned as of today that Rick Lawlisher is back as president and CEO of the Edmonton Elks organization. A man who had been there from 2002 to 2011 was asked by the board to return. Thoughts on that? We know this is an interim move. I don't believe Lawlisher is going to be there long term but he is somebody that can stabilize things for the time being. He spent many seasons with the Elks previously, also some years with the BC Lions. So uh, a man that knows the CFL, knows the game, and also knows the community-owned aspect that is the Edmonton Elks. Uh, I think it's a great move for stability. The board has made it very clear that they are looking to get a permanent president in place likely by the end of this year, if at all possible. But this interim one kind of gets them through this season and they can move forward from here. He does come at a very difficult time for the franchise. He does have that expertise. My question has been throughout that press conference and through all of this, what was so wrong with the franchise that they needed to remove or ask to resign Victor Kui and then bring back Rick Lawlisher, who had spent five years with the BC Lions. I, I think it boils down to, obviously, the board and Victor Kui were not on the same page of the direction that they wanted to go. I think the optics plays a big part when you've got a team that's struggling on the field and apparently is struggling off the field. We talked a lot about the coach's cap and, and how you have to look at all your options when you're making these personnel changes. Victor Kui, as the number one guy in that organization, was the one that has to take the fall here. Bringing Rick Lawlisher back in, as I said, is, is a stabilization move. It's going to show the Elks want to get back to what they did well. Now, I think that Victor Kui did a lot of great things for promoting the organization. A lot of positives came from that. There are some rumblings here and there about some of the negatives. And again, we're not in the boardroom. We're not in the locker room. So we can't answer to any of those. Rick Lawlisher just calms the waters a little bit. It, it, it helps them settle down the public image. He's had success running the organization in the past, in the years that he was with the Elks as well. I, I feel for Rick, it's a little bit of just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in. Um, I believe he's at an age and a, a point in his life where he doesn't want to be the permanent fixture, but certainly coming in right now as that interim tag is an ideal situation both for him and for the team. I would love to know exactly what went on that they felt that Victor Kui was just not the right fit for the position. I, I really would love to know the you can't blame Victor for what was happening in the stands. He was trying to do things. Maybe the innovations that he was looking at was something that they weren't accustomed to and just couldn't get their heads around. I I just feel in so many ways that he's taking a big hit for what went on. And again, as we talked about in the last podcast, Victor didn't hire anybody. Victor came after all of the hires were made. 
So whatever you think of the on-field performance, that wasn't him. That team with its 22-game losing streak, and I'm just to point this out, once you get the North American record for consecutive losses at home, it just becomes a number now. Only matters to the Elks and just getting out of that slump. With Lawlisher, he's very kind of laid back. He's much more casual. He's a bit of the old guard. And one of the things that the CFL has been talking about is trying to be innovative and moving forward. Well, now we're seeing with the Elks, with their head coach, general manager, and their president, they've all gone back to an era 15 years ago. They have. And Tom Richards spoke at length in the in the press conference about the changes that they were looking to make. He gave a vote of com- confidence to Chris Jones as the, the man in charge of the team right now as far as the head coach and GM. We'll see where the chips fall at the end of the season. I would imagine once a new president is named, they are going to have that opportunity to put their mark on the team. Now, whether that is continuing on with Chris Jones in the head coach and GM position. We don't know. Uh, Again, if the team fails to win four or five games for the remainder of the season, where do you rank his success over his years at the helm? Is it time to make that change or does he have enough vision and can articulate his plan that is going to buy him some more time to get the player personnel in to get back to a competitive team? I find it interesting that Richards even commented, and this was on the press conference or during the press conference when Victor Kui, the announcement came out that Victor Kui would no longer be a part of the team. The comment that he made that this is a young team and that they're going to make mistakes. And I was thinking to myself at the time, well, they weren't a young team when Jones inherited them. (laughs) He made them young by basically turning over the entire roster you don't always land on your feet. Sometimes you have to start to crawl, then walk. And right now the Elks have been crawling, especially with their one loss record. If they're allowed to gel and allowed to grow together, they will get better. The question is, do you have the patience for that? Is Lawlisher going to sit back and say, well, this is the right course for the team? The bigger thing is, and, and we've talked about it, is the operations cap. It really does limit. And I've got a thought about this. Yeah, I, I don't see Rick Lawlisher coming in and making massive changes right now unless he sees something glaringly wrong with the way this organization is running and the way that the on-field product and personnel are in place. I, I believe strongly that his that his role right now is to just, as I said, calm the waters, let everybody know that, yes, we did make changes. We've got somebody in place that we have full confidence in. And and that's got to be the message across the board. I I think that if there's any big changes, we're not going to see them over these next nine, 10 weeks of the season. We're going to see big changes coming in the off season if that's the direction that the Elks organization wants to go problem with that is if you make more change you're probably squaring back to the start again and how long do you want to take rebuilding this franchise a second or a third time at some point like I say you've got to go with what you got I was thinking about the operations cap and a lot of people have 
decried it, saying it's too limiting, etc. One of the things that I thought about was that if a team wins less than a third of its game, so six down to zero in a season, that maybe for the next season you get a bump in the operations cap in one of two ways. You can dismiss someone and not have that count against the cap, or you get a bump. In other words, you have an extra stipend to spend, maybe 500000 where you still have to pay and have it count the people that you've dismissed, but you have room now to get some other contracts in and under. Maybe it's a million, but do it once and maximally once in three years. Give that little bit of allowance so that you can make the changes and then maybe if you restrict them right after, then you have to live with it. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some tweaking to the operations cap. Tom Richards did speak to that a little bit in the press conference as well when he was asked about it. And and his response, I thought, was fantastic. He, he talked about how the cap was put in place to look out for the best interests of all nine teams in the league. He said that if one team is terrible for two years, it doesn't mean that we should blow this whole thing up. But as you said, some some tweaks are certainly a way to go. I, I compare it in a way to the NHL player salary cap in that teams are allowed to buy out a contract. A portion of that still counts against their salary cap, but they are free from the length of the contracts. And, and something like that might work in these situations as well, where you've got a certain value that still counts, but it's going to free up some money. So just arbitrarily to throw a number out there, let's say that a coach is making $500,000 a season. If you want to make the change and buy that person out, you free up now $250,000 as opposed to the full 500000 for the duration of that coach's contract, whether it was one year left, two years left. It probably still means some promotion from within that you're, you're looking at maybe your current offensive coordinator, something like that, that takes over that head coach role, but it allows you to bring in somebody else to develop and, and move. And it, it's going to help bring an influx of new faces to the coaching staffs and to that coaching fraternity in the league, but not allow you to get away scot-free. The other problem that comes out, especially when a team is, going through what the Elks are going through is that typically coaching staffs all come together at once. They're all on the same sort of duration of contract. So you get hamstrung by that as well. If you get rid of any one of them, it's going to affect you. Where if, say in the Saskatchewan Rough Riders case, where they've hired a new offensive coordinator, he may not be on the same tenured contract number that the others are different year, it's not as impactful as when they're all together. Because once you change a head coach, it matters what happens with, we've seen everywhere, Toronto, Hamilton, Ottawa, they've all brought in their own regimes. And that's completely understandable. Any general manager or any head coach wants to put those pieces in place that are answering to them. So be it a head coach put in by a general manager or a coordinator staff put in by a head coach you want personnel that you are comfortable with that you are going to be able to work with for the long term famously we know that Jeremy O'Day and Craig Dickinson are on expiring contracts there was a lot of 
outcry for changes to be made. Jason Moss was the one that took the hit last season for the the Rough Riders. He certainly landed on his feet in Montreal, and we'll get to that a little bit later as we do the game recaps here. But that was a, a situation where to protect themselves, they needed to find somebody else to fall on the sword almost is what I would say for Jason Moss in that situation. There is a lot of speculation still about what's going to happen in Regina. The win on the weekend has certainly upset the apple cart. The other place I think that we look at in terms of turmoil is obviously Hamilton and Orlando Steinhauer. You've got Scott Milanovic, another head coach, who's now an offensive coordinator with your team. Steinauer's football team is not coming anywhere close to expectation. The pressure is on. The pressure has been on. And, and they had some fantastic teams. 2019, they were right in the mix. 2021, they, they made it to, to back-to-back Grey Cups. Lost them both. Especially that 2019 team. They went in 15-3 and three going into the playoffs. And the expectation was this was the team that was going to to end that drought they didn't come through and now we're three seasons down the road you have to start looking at Orlando Steinauer and that window has started to swing shut on the Tiger Cats they have made some personnel changes on the field as well and still without that success so Steinauer has to be the guy responsible and and I would not be surprised if he doesn't make it to the end of the season if they don't turn things around here in the next couple of weeks. The The big Labor Day matches coming up are going to be a, a real telltale sign of where these teams are at. Given that the East has won more games against the West than the other way around, it's kind of surprising that Hamilton is in a dogfight to avoid the crossover. And that's exactly where they are. Them and Ottawa both are sitting there with Calgary. I don't know if Steinhauer is going to be gone Within the season, I highly doubt that. But if the Ticats say go four and fourteen, five and thirteen, there's something that's going to have to give. And I'm wondering too, how much are they missing Sean Burke? Because since he left for Ottawa, Hamilton has kind of gone a little bit backwards. The Tiger Cats, it's not when you win; it's when you lose. What do you do to fix that? It's this is where we find out who you are. It's sort of the old adage: it's not the burden you carry, but how you carry it. And we're going to find out with the Tiger Cats. To defend Coach Steinhauer a little little bit here, I think we have to look at the quarterback situation and the injuries that they have gone through as well. And it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card to just blame the injuries because there are a lot of teams and a lot of quarterbacks that were on the roster on week one that were the number one guys that are not currently the number one guys on their teams. But the amount of excitement and the level of expectation raised by signing Bo Levi Mitchell to the Tiger Cats was huge and a lot of confidence and a lot of speculation that they were going to be a Grey Cup contender this year, that Mitchell was going to be that difference maker. Unfortunately, the injury bug has caught him twice this season and and he's going to miss a lot more games than he plays this year if he is back on the field at all by the end of the season. I, I would be surprised if he is. I know they, they talked about the, the injury and the recovery time, and it would be quite possible, but depending on where they are in the standings when he's healthy enough to start taking reps, do they risk it, or is this 
uh, uh, throw away year. And, and I guess it boils down to, as you mentioned, the, the playoff scenario of where the Red Blacks and the Stampeders are record-wise when Mitchell is ready to return as well. The other overriding concern for the Tiger Cats is they're the host of the Grey Cup. They want to be there. They were there and lost in overtime the last time the game was held in Hamilton. But they've got a huge hill to climb. Second down. Let's review what happened last week, week 11 in the Canadian Football League. Edmonton wins for the first time this season, a 24-10 victory over the Hamilton Tiger Cats in Hamilton. They avenged the loss to the Tiger Cats they had earlier in the season. Interestingly, Logan Powell threw a touchdown pass on his very first attempt in the CFL in that game in Edmonton for the Tiger Cats. He has not thrown one since. He didn't have a bad game in this one. 20 for 26 for 218 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions. So a little bit of an inability to put points on the board. And on the other side, for as much as Chris Jones spoke negatively of Trey Ford early on in the season, talked about him not being prepared at camp, etc. It looks to me like the number one quarterback in Edmonton has been decided for the foreseeable future, and it's Trey Ford. He's had a couple of starts now, looked really good early on in that game against Winnipeg, almost pulled off the upset there, and then this week, again, nothing flashy, 178 yards passing, but got the job done and got the win. Huge weather delay at halftime in that game, and a lot of times the team with the lead is the team that struggles coming out of the gate in the second half, and Edmonton did. Now, the one thing that I loved, and this happened in the BC line versus Saskatchewan Rough Rider game, is that on third and one, how many times have I argued, quit plunging, do something interesting? Well, the Elks did it. Trey Ford found... Eugene Lewis by the goal line. Eugene Lewis, who I've mixed up with Eugene Levy, probably caught the ball like Eugene Levy may have and dropped it. It was a sure touchdown and he let it go through his hands down to ground. He didn't mean to, but it happened. And for a guy as talented as Eugene Lewis, that was a stunner. But what a great thing to do by the Elks to try on third and one to catch the defense and get a quick strike. And it almost worked had Lewis just hung on to the ball it would have worked yeah we, we've talked about this about the lack of creativity on second and short and third and short that we've seen from the offensive coordinators over the last couple of seasons I love taking that chance as well I, I think it's it's great to have another look it did catch that defense of Hamilton off guard you've got to make those plays it's it's unlikely that Gino Lewis is going to drop the next opportunity that comes his way in a situation like that. He is a sure-handed receiver. I'm I'm sure he's beating himself up this week, especially had they not got the win in this one. He would have felt a lot worse. So winning does change everything. The Elks now have that one win on the board. Uh, some key games coming up here. Again, we're, we're getting close to Labor Day where they've got that home and home with the Calgary Stampeders. If things go their way, they're they're right back in this playoff race with a potential crossover on the board. Getting to third place in the West is a bit more challenging with the Rough Riders having won this week as well. But that crossover still in play. 
There's a lot of games left. Taylor Cornelius goes out and throws one pass. And again, creativity rules the day. Second and one, he fakes like he's diving the line, steps back and throws a pass to A.C. Leonard. Typically a defensive lineman, but he was a receiver when he broke into the CFL. It was Chris Jones that turned him around and put him on the defensive side of the ball. 45 yards on the play, and that set up another touchdown for Edmonton. I'm guessing he may have the record for longest duration between receptions. Because I believe the last time he caught a ball was 2015. One of the best stat lines that we've seen from Taylor Cornelius this season, unfortunately, it was only in the game where he threw one pass. Now, the saga of Mark Leggio. One of four and a misconvert in this football game. Where are the Tiger Cats with him? Because if you take and put nine points back on the board or ten points back on the board, Hamilton is in this football game. The wheels have certainly come off for Mark Leggio. He came into Hamilton earlier this season and was making everything. He had he had quite a streak going. This type of performance is what frustrated Winnipeg fans over the last couple of seasons where he left a lot of points out there. It's not unusual or unexpected for a, a kicker to miss one or two, especially since they moved the point-afters back. They are not a given they're not a 100 percent or even a 95 percent success rate anymore that has added a bit of a wrinkle to things but when you are one for four and again missing that convert that's 10 points that could have been a difference maker in this game legio overall is 20 of 24 he missed three against the elks and it hurt the tiger cats and this is what i was talking about earlier missed opportunities points that you don't score hurt winnipeg goes into calgary and squeaks out a 19 to 18 victory over the calgary stampeders a game that came down to a last minute field goal attempt from rennie paradis 50 yards away and sadly for him a little gust of wind just catches the ball and moves it slightly to the right he was 6 of 8 in the game. The other time he missed a field goal, he hit the upright. You're dealing with inches here, but unfortunately for Paredes, he's on the short end, and he scores all the points that Calgary gets, but still takes some of the blame for this. It's really rough on him. I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair either. The expectation of your kicker making 8 field goals in a game means the rest of your offense is not converting their opportunities to put touchdowns on the board. Un unfortunately for Rene Paredes, this is not the first time that he's come up just short against Winnipeg over the last couple of seasons. Uh, again, six of eight, one off the crossbar, or the upright, sorry, is, is not the place where you can put blame squarely on him. You look at what happened with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and Sergio Castillo only had four field goal attempts, made all four, but that team also struggled to find the end zone, and the only touchdown in the game was scored was on an interception return by Demario Houston of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And it was pointed out during the football game that that single point that came on the convert was the only difference in the entire game. That one extra point that Winnipeg needed to win. One bad pass by Jake Mayer, and it cost him dearly. Again, Calgary's offense, very minimalistic in terms of its passing. 
11 completions of 24 attempts for 190. Not bad, but again, when you're not throwing for over 200 in a football game, it makes you wonder. Now, Drew Brown, who everyone thought was the best thing since sliced bread, goes 17 to 27 for 171. He didn't look super great either. The weather conditions, it was very cold for an August night in Calgary. It just really came down to one big play that crushed the Stampeders. Drew Brown had one pass that he would like back as well. He threw a what was a sure interception that was dropped by the Stampeders defense. This game could have gone either way. Sometimes good teams find a way to win no matter how it looks. And sometimes teams that are struggling seem to find a way to lose. And I think it was a little bit of both in this game that that Winnipeg Blue Bombers team eked out the win, but if not for a couple of mistakes or miscues by the Calgary Stampeders, it could have gone the other way. Uh, a solid night for Houston. He, I don't know what he needs to do to supplant Willie Jefferson as the Defensive Player of the Year nominee for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. He's well on his way. Seven interceptions, three fumble recoveries, I believe, is the stat line that he has so far this season. This is the first one he's returned for a touchdown, but he is making things happen in that defensive secondary. Luther Hakavananu dropped a ball at the five-yard line. He catches that. He's got an easy walk into the end zone, and game result could be quite a bit different. It's often said that five plays are your markers for any football game. And I think we've elocuted four of them. Alouettes go into Ottawa to take on the Red Blacks. Red Blacks on a three-game losing streak. Unfortunately for them, that continues. Montreal with a huge fourth-quarter rally defeat the Red Blacks 25-24 in Ottawa. The Red Blacks let this one slip away, much like they had the big upset win against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. They looked to have this one in control, stumbled down the stretch and allowed the Montreal Alouettes to, to steal this one away. Caleb Evans, again, as the quarterback of note for the Alouettes, has looked really good as that number two quarterback. It's been a, a great fit for him working with Cody Fajardo and with Jason Moss. He he led the comeback and, and uh, got this team the win. He did toss a head-scratching interception in the first quarter that could have been very devastating for the Alouettes, but they managed to find a way back. The Red Blacks have depended so heavily on their defense to keep them in football games. It did, and I think some credit needs to go to that Montreal defense as well. We've talked about them being one of the, the best defenses in the league. Maybe not the best first half for the Alouettes, but they showed up in the second half and really made the Red Blacks fight for every yard and every point. Caleb Evans, 24 of 36 for 333. Dustin Crum for the Red Blacks, 14 of 19 for 130 and an interception himself. Montreal with a huge rally, as we mentioned, two touchdowns in the final three minutes to win this football game. Huge confidence boost for the Alouettes, but how devastating is it for the Red Blacks? Of the 10 games that they've played, nine have gone into the last three minutes and they've only won three. Yeah, this is a little bit of a letdown for the Red Blacks. They came off of two big overtime wins back-to-back against Winnipeg and Calgary. It looked like they were turning things around and ready to make a push. And although they have been in every game since, they have not come out on the right side of the final score. 
Uh, again, the one thing I will say about Dustin Crum is since he has taken over that quarterback position, they've had opportunities and they have been in every game. As soon as they figure out that little bit extra to get over the hump, this team is going to make some noise. I was worried for Crum in that game when he scored a touchdown in the fourth quarter where he just crossed the goal line. He took a hellacious hit. And I thought for sure that he wasn't coming back on the field after that because his body just doubled back. Begs of the question, why are we having these quarterbacks run? We're up to 21 different starters at quarterback this year. 25, I think, not that many years ago was the number that people thought we should never get back to. Well, we're almost there already. At the halfway point. I think we're going to get there this year. When you look at Jake Mayer and how he's managed to make his way through and Chad Kelly being the only other one. But Chad Kelly has had three buys to start the season. Jake Mayer has not. And and now Chad Kelly's got a 10-game stretch here without a buy for the remainder of the season. So it's going to be a real hard situation to keep him healthy through those last 10 games. And even at that, if they get into a situation where they've locked up first place in the East, it might not be an injury that forces Chad Kelly off the field, but we may be looking at another starter in Toronto when the the game isn't going to affect their spot in the standings. That's what I'm thinking. Cameron Dukes will be starting at some point if the Argos have clinched first place early. Sunday game, which have proved very popular for the CFL this year. Standard 5 o'clock start on the Prairies, 7 o'clock Eastern. Has really done well for television ratings. And the Rough Riders and the Lions do not disappoint. This was a barn burner that went down to the end. And it's the Rough Riders defense that finally finds a way to stop the Lions. And they hold off and win 34-29 to in what was by far the best game of the weekend? It was. And looking at the stat lines in this one, on paper going into the game, a lot of people felt that the Lions were going to come in here and, and win big. If you see that Vernon Adams threw for 455 yards and three touchdowns, odds are that you think that they won this game handily. But credit due to the Saskatchewan Rough Riders for, for this win. Jake Dolagala gets his first win as a starter. I thought the receiving core of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders really were responsible for that win as well. Dolagala didn't look bad, but his receivers made him look great. Samuel Emelis had a career day and the touchdown pass that he caught going down the left side of the field where Dolagala threw it out and he just jumped. It felt like 20 feet into the air to catch it and come down with it and get the long touchdown was just unbelievable to watch. You need those kind of performances if you're going to beat the BC Lions because you have to do something special. Defense. And look at how BC came back into the game. Long passes, uh, Alexander Hollins and Lucky Whitehead, both clearing and going for long scores. And the Lions, who looked like they were out of it and looked very discombobulated to the point where their head coach... Rick Campbell threw a challenge on a roughing the passer call where the Rough Rider defender was actually picking Vernon Adams Jr. off the field after he had been bumped. But at that juncture of the game, it looked like the wheels were coming off for the BC Lions. Rick Campbell going into that situation, trying to take the interception off the board. He's got a challenge flag in his pocket. You don't want to have any doubt after the final whistle and maybe not 
a winnable call, you've got to take some chances sometimes. The other thing too, and, and it could be argued that he was looking to get a timeout, you may as well throw a challenge in with it anyway. What difference does it make? Because as I said, the Lions looked like the the wheels were coming off. They were just really out of sorts. And they just found a way to settle down and start moving forward again and really put it to the Rough Riders in the fourth quarter, outscoring them 16-3. to three. You could argue that with about two and a half minutes to go when BC decides to kick a field goal, that maybe that was the wrong decision. But when you think about it, they did get the ball back and all they needed was a field goal to win the game. It just really what it came down to, the Rough Rider defense took over. I, I think that one of the standouts for the Rough Riders this year has to be Anthony Lanier on that defensive line as well. He has elevated his game this year. And when needed, he has come up with the big sack and the the drive-stopping plays. Uh, so, so he's a guy that I look to on that Rough Riders defense that's really leading the way this year. He ate up Kent Perkins. Perkins, who got called for multiple procedure and especially holding penalties, really had a rough night at the office. This was the Rough Rider defense that we expected to see in Montreal that didn't show up. But this is the defense that we've seen most of the season. That drubbing they took at the hands of the Alouettes could be the one-off and maybe is also the one that you listen to the coach again. Third down. Four games on the SCAD in the CFL this weekend, starting Thursday with the Alouettes in Winnipeg to take on the Blue Bombers. Blue Bombers favored by seven and a half points. Uh, Just a little... Side note, Winnipeg at home, average margin of victory is 19.6. Just saying, maybe not the most interesting game to watch, but <laughs> they're justified as being favored. I, Cody Fajardo is going to be back in the starting lineup for the Alouettes. Is that enough to change anything? Montreal did go in and beat the Blue Bombers last year in Winnipeg. Also of note, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers' loss at home was by 24 points. So a lot of a lot of big point swings in Winnipeg so far. Cody Fajardo back for the Alouettes. Zach Caleros back for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers this week after missing a game with a neck injury. If you look at the Alouettes this season, they're 6-3 and three going into this game. Their three losses this year have been to Winnipeg, BC, and Toronto who are kind of that top tier of teams in the league. So we're seeing Montreal beat the teams that they should beat and then struggling in these games against the upper echelon teams, if you will. I like Winnipeg in this one. I don't like the seven and a half points. I think this one's going to be their closest home victory of the season. So I'm taking Winnipeg with the win, but close enough that that uh, Montreal will beat that spread. Montreal has had success in Winnipeg, although famously they lost to the Blue Bombers in 2017 when the Blue Bombers scored two touchdowns in the final minute and a half of that game. They lost in Montreal to the Blue Bombers, and you're right, they're sort of the team that's on the outside of that upper echelon, and if they can come in and do something against Winnipeg, then they get put in that category as the elite They deserve to be there. The question is now, can they put it on the field and make it happen? Montreal's defense is going to be tested early. Winnipeg loves to come out of the gate and throw it deep and see what you're about right off the top, especially in Winnipeg, get that crowd going. 
They did it to BC the last time they were there. They did it to Calgary when they were there. This is Winnipeg's way of kind of putting you down and keeping you down once the game gets going. The spread, I think, is legit. I think I'd stick with it. I I like Montreal, but I just don't know that they're going to have enough for the Blue Bombers this time out. Second game, Stampeders, after a close game against Winnipeg, now get to go to play the best record in the CFL in their home park, the Toronto Argonauts, coming off a bye, no less. More time to get healthy for Chad Kelly as he faces the Calgary Stampeders. Nine and a half point favorites for the Argonauts. I don't know if I could see the Stampeders do anything with that spread. I think the Stampeders are in for a long night. The Stampeders need to figure out a way to score touchdowns. That has been hampering them this year, especially that last game. Six field goals is not going to win you many games in the CFL if there's no touchdowns to go along with it. Teams coming off a bye this season have a phenomenal win-loss record. I like Toronto at home. Calgary needs to show a bit more, but I, I do think this one is going to be a little bit closer. I, I am I once again going to pick the Argonauts to win this one, but for the Calgary Stampeders to beat that spread. Calgary has only attempted 41 passes of 20 yards or more. Attempted fewer is the Ottawa Red Blacks, 31. 14 completions for the Stampeders, only seven for Ottawa. This matters. If you cannot get the ball down the field in a three-down game, you are in big trouble. Second down efficiency is also a place where you can really sort of demark who's the elite and who's not. And if you check the stats out, the teams that are 50% and above on second down are the top five, and the teams that are less than that are the bottom four. Calgary, unless they find a way to figure out that ball hawk and Argonaut defense and score on them, this will be a route for the Argonauts. I can't see Calgary winning, but you got to play the game. Saturday night, the Hamilton Tiger Cats are in... BC to take on the Lions. One of these cats is going to feast. My pick is the team in orange and black is going to beat the team in gold and black and handily. I concur with you on this one. We saw Vernon Adams put up over 450 yards passing in the last game. The Tiger Cats have not shown much over the last several weeks. I I like BC in this one and BC big. Now Vernon Adams Jr. was hobbled during that game against Saskatchewan. And he basically played most of the second half on one leg because he was skipping to the huddle, but still had enough adrenaline going through him. Uh, a, a fan of the show actually contacted me and proposed an idea. And this this relates to Vernon Adams. This relates to Fajardo. This relates to a lot of the quarterbacks that have been injured. Why don't we look at a rule where how we protect the punters? Once the ball is gone, you can't touch them. What if we ever did that for quarterbacks? Once the ball is released, he can't touch them. That's interesting. I think that would take too much of, his, of the physicality out of the game. You've got the momentum. And I, I know it's a, a matter of rethinking how you operate on defense. When you're coming through to block that punt, you have to change your, your launch angles. But more often than not, the punter is still going to try to punt the ball. The quarterback can pull it down and run and really change the dynamic. I, I see where they're going with it, and certainly protecting quarterbacks is important. That one would 
take years to get sorted out the right way. Dane Evans will be available if called upon for this football game. And it would be interesting to see what kind of emotions are going through his head, given that he had started his career with Hamilton and had been there until the beginning of this season. The Lions, the receiving core is getting healthy. Dominic Rimes might be back. Hamilton's defense can probably keep them in the game, but their offense is woeful. One touchdown last week. Logan Powell has thrown one touchdown all season. Ten and a half for the Lions is about right. I can't see how Hamilton's going to get inside of that. The final game of the weekend, Ottawa in Edmonton. And this is a really interesting game because... As we've stated repeatedly on the show, Ottawa's must-watch TV, and Edmonton is coming off a win. Also, they've had 10 days rest going into this game. This on the betting websites, the majority of them are calling it a pick'em. Betting is probably pretty even up on both sides. It's a very rare circumstance, so basically all we're trying to figure out is who's going to win this football game. The quarterback matchup is really intriguing in this one. Dustin Crum versus Trey Ford. Neither was the anointed starter at the beginning of the season. They're in there now. And as I mentioned earlier, Crum has done an amazing job of keeping the Red Blacks in every game that he has played in. They haven't turned those all into wins, but they are right there. I think they get things turned around this week, and I am going to pick the Red Blacks to go into Edmonton and eke out a win in this one. The the pick'em is is an interesting line because I can't see... An outcome in this game, it could be a, a big win by either team or it could come down to one point here or there. It's going to be a really fun one to watch. Edmonton, of course, the last time they were at home, ramped up 22 points on the Winnipeg Blue Bombers before the Bombers rallied. Such a huge game for Ottawa. This is an opportunity where they kind of will know what's happened with Hamilton from the night before. They'll know what's happened to Calgary from two nights before. If those teams both lose as expected... This is an opportunity for Ottawa to step over top of them and get ahead of them in the standings. This one is maybe the most important game of the week from that standpoint, as far as the the playoff picture. There's teams pulling away atop both the East and the West. BC is still only one game behind Winnipeg, but those two are the front runners for sure. And at this point, the Argonauts are running away with the East. A big win by the Rough Riders last week as well. Let's not forget that that got them to 5-5 five and five on the season and has pulled them a full two games clear of those teams chasing. So uh, it's starting to get a little bit more clear at the at the top. And realistically, Toronto and Winnipeg are, are both looking very strong to be hosting, at minimum, a playoff game, but more likely a, a division final. The other teams that are, are fighting for those even for those home playoff dates right now. BC's got got the, the lock on it right now, but if Saskatchewan has a big Labor Day Banjo Bowl back-to-back games against Winnipeg, that whole West Division is, is right back up for grabs. Let's consider this. If Edmonton wins and everything else plays out the way we think, Edmonton's going to be one game back in that crossover battle with a pair of games against the Stampeders in the offing. You've got to think that they're highly motivated because of that as well. They suddenly become into the mix. And this is huge for that franchise. I'm going to lean towards Ottawa just because I think their defense is just that much better.
you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again the Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.